So, welcome back to Thursday's Night's True Crime and Anything Spooky. Mentally, I don't think I was there. I was a little out of it, and I was super busy with work, but I'm back, and I have some really, really interesting stuff for you guys tonight. It might not be a super long episode, but I I got the goods. I got the good goods. So, the first story tonight is going to be the Hua- the Huya Basu Forest. It's in Romania, and it is one of the most haunted forests in the world. So, I think that's interesting. I hope you guys like it. Forgive me if I mispronounce these names. I've just... I'm not Romanian, so I don't exactly know how to pronounce these names, but we will figure it out together, and hey. Also, another thing, um, I'm going to try and get a Facebook group thing started for, well, a page and a group for this podcast, so I can post pictures, and I can do all of that fun stuff. So that way you guys can also see what I get to see when I'm researching it. So, yeah. Okay, so. The the Huya Huya Basu Forest. This is the most haunted forest. It's located near Cluj-Napaca, Romania. And it covers 250 hectares. And is often referred to as the Bermuda Triangle of the country. Huaya Baisu Forest has a reputation of intense paranormal activity and unexplained events. Reports have included ghost sightings, unexplained apparitions, faces appearing in photographs that were not visible with the naked with the naked eye, and in the 1970s, UFO sightings were reported. People who visit the forest <clears throat> okay. So people who have visited the forest often report feeling of anxiety and feeling like they are constantly being watched. The forest was named after a shepherd that went missing with a flock of two hundred sheep. Most people are afraid to enter the forest due to the legends of people never returning from it. But the locals who have entered it has complained of physical harm, including rashes, nausea, vomiting, and migraines, burns, scratches, and anxiety, and a lot of other unusual sensations. Between the 60s and 70s, this forest became a hotbed for UFO sightings. Several people included Alexander Sift and Emil Barnia captured amazing photos of the UFOs and unexplained lights. But to this often malfunction in the forest, and many people associate this happening with the paranormal, things that often take place in the Hawaii Baisu Forest are appearances of mysterious orbs of light. 
People also report hearing disembodied female voices and giggling. People who also report seeing apparitions being scratched, all these happen with no reasonable explanation. Some believe that this forest is a gateway to another dimension. People have been known to disappear, see strange lights, and the wind seems to speak. People who have entered experience missing time. And this is actually a story of a girl who entered the forest. And, well, you guys will hear it. So, a five-year-old girl who entered the forest came out five years later and had no recollection of the time she spent in there. And her clothes were untarnished. Like, they were not dirty. Like, it looked like she had just went in there. She was wearing the same clothes for five years and didn't even know. The woods are thought to be haunted by the Romanian peasants who were murdered here. It is believed that the souls of these tormented ghosts are trapped in the confines of the forest, and they are enraged enraged by their predicament. People who visit often experience visions of these spirits and feel watched as... As they reach the edge of the forest, there's a clearing in the forest in the shape of a circle, and it is referred to as the home of the spirits. Many who live near the forest report seeing a large collection of lights and orbs of light coming from the tree line. Some who enter remember all of their past experiences, but tend to forget them when they leave the forest. Fun fact. Nicholas Cage has even visited this forest. Like, dude, a famous person has, um, visited. I kind of want to visit now. But yeah, the next story is about the Fairmont Banff Springs Hotel. It's in Canada. And it opened in the late 1800s. It has been a shining example of Canadian hospitality over the years. William Cornelius Van Horn, (laughs) the general manager of the Canadian Pacific Railway, first considered constructing a grand hotel in the Canadian Rockies. When several employees of his railroad stumbled across several springs... Hold on, I will be right back. Okay. So, (laughs) sorry, I had to take a sip of drink, add some mucus building up, and it just was not going. Okay, so, he began building the hotel when he noticed a great opportunity to facilitate travel along the Canadian Railway. Construction began in 1886 and ended two years later. It quickly became one of the top three mountain resorts in North America. From nineteen hundred from the nineteen hundreds to nineteen twenty, they done a lot of adjustments to keep the status up. The hotel even endured the Great Depression and kept its status as one of the best mountain resorts. And people who stayed there, including King George the Sixth and his wife during the tour during their tour of Canada in eighteen thirty nine. The hotel shut down in nineteen forty two and would not reopen until the end of World War II in 1945. Due to the shortage of labor, it took 
the 50s and 60s for the hotel to gain its status back. In the 70s, the hotel started to stay open all year. In 1990s, the hotel got a new owner, whose name is Ted Kissini, who gave it the nickname Castle in the Rockies. But this hotel does have a few guests who've checked in but never checked out. The first ghost up is the bride. She is the most famous ghost residing in the hotel. So on her wedding day, she was all dressed up and was coming down the marble stairs of the hotel. And something caught her up. Oh. Coming down the marble stairs of the hotel and something caused her to slip and she fell to her death. The next ghost is, Sel- is Sam the Bellman. So Sam is a very helpful ghost. Sam is a very nice ghost. Because he's Sam. <laughs> I keep thinking of Supernatural when I say Sam. But this is Sam the Bellman. I could not find a lot about him. I don't know why everything that I kept finding said the same thing. So I don't really know. So Sam McCauley, an old Scotsman who was head Bellman in the 60s and 70s, have been circulating since his passing in 1975. Sam is a very helpful spirit who still offers services even after his death. He will still help you out. So I know it's not a lot on that one, but the true crime portion. So it's it's not a I don't think it's a murder. No, I don't think it's a murder. I don't know. I did not read the whole thing. I ended up reading like a little bit of the article and then I was just not feeling super good and I had to get this episode out. So towards the end, we will be figuring out what happened together, but this is a kidnapping. So, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., the 20-month-old son of the famous aviator and Anne Mara Lindbergh, was kidnapped at 9 p.m. on March 1st in 1990, uh, in 1932, not 1990. Uh, see, when I say I don't feel good, <laughs> I really am not feeling all that great. He was taken from the nursery on the second floor An hour later, his nurse noticed he was missing. They searched the whole second floor, and a 50,000 ransom note was found on the nursery windowsill. The police were notified, and the New Jersey State Police took charge of the investigation. During the search of the scene, muddy footprints that were impossible to measure were found under the window, and two sections of the ladder that was used were found broken, but there was no blood or fingerprints found at the scene. They'd done everything they could to get in touch with the kidnappers. Colonial Lindbergh received another ransom note demanding $70,000 on March 6, 1932. The third ransom note was received by the attorney on March 8, informing that no intermediary would be accepted and demanded a note in the newspaper on the same day Dr. John F. Condon, a retired school principal published in the Bronx Home News, 
an offer to be a go-between for the family and the kidnapper. He was approved and received $70,000 in cash as ransom and immediately started negotiating through newspaper columns using the codename Jaspi. About 8.30 p.m. on March 12th, after getting a phone call, Dr. Condon got the fifth ransom note. It was delivered by Joseph Perron, a taxi driver, who got it from a stranger and stated that another note would be found under a stone at a vacant stand 100 feet from a subway station. Following instructions, therein the doctor met an unidentified man who called himself John at Woodlawn Cemetery near 233rd Street and Jeremone Avenue. They discussed payment of the ransom money. The stranger agreed to furnish a token of the child's identity. Condon was accompanied by a bodyguard, except while talking to John. During the next few days, Dr. Condon repeated uh, his adversaries, urging further contact and stating his willingness to pay the ransom. A baby's sleeping suit as a token of identity and a seventh ransom note were received by Dr. Condon on March 16th. The suit was delivered to Colonial Lindbergh and later identified. Condon continued his advertisements. The eighth ransom note was received by Condon on March 21st, insisting on complete compliance and advising that the kidnapping had been planned for a year. On March 26th, Betty Gao, the Lindbergh nurse, found the infant, the infant's thumb guard worn at the time of the kidnapping near the entrance of the estate. The following day, the ninth ransom note was received by Condon, threatening to increase the demand to $100,000 and refusing a code for use in newspaper columns. The tenth ransom note delivered received by Dr. Condon on March 1st, 1932, instructed him to have the money ready the following night, to which Condon replied by an ad in the press. The 11th ransom note was delivered to Condon on March 2nd, not March 2nd, but April 2nd, 1932, by an unidentified taxi driver who he received it from. And Unknown man, Dr. Condon found the twelfth ransom note under a stone in front of a greenhouse at 3225 East Trent Avenue, Bronx, New York. As instructed, the, as instructed in the eleventh note, shortly after, on the same evening, by by following the instructions contained in the twelfth note, Condon again met whom he believed to be John to reduce the demand to $50,000. This amount was handed to the stranger in exchange for a seat, and the thirteenth note containing instructions to the effect that the kidnapped child would be found on a boat named Nellie near Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. The stranger then walked, nor walked north into the park woods, 
The following day, an unsuccessful search for the baby was made near Martha's Vineyard. The search was later repeated. Dr. Condon would po was positive that he would recognize John if he ever saw him again. On May 12, 1932, the body of the kidnapped baby was accidentally found partly buried and badly decomposed about four and a half miles southeast of the Lindbergh home. 54 feet from the highway near Mount Rose, New Jersey, and Mercer County. The discovery was made by William Allen, an assistant on a truck driven by Orville, Orville Wilson. The head was crushed. There was a hole in the skull and some of the body members were missing. The body was positively identified and cremated at Trenton, New Jersey. On May 13, 1932, the coroner's examination showed that the child had been dead for about two months and that the death was caused by a blow on the head. On March 2, 1932, after a conference with the Attorney General FBI Director, Jay Hoover had contacted the headquarters of the New Jersey State Police at Trenton, New Jersey. He officially informed the organization that the U.S. Department of Justice would afford Colonial Norman Schwarzkopf the Department of Justice, the superintendent of the New Jersey State Police, the assistance and cooperation of the FBI in bringing about the apprehension of the parties responsible for the kidnapping. He advised the New Jersey State Police that they could call upon the borough for any facilities or resources with the latter might be capable of extending. The special agent in charge of the New York City Office of the Borough, which at that time covered the New Jersey District, was instructed accordingly and upon instructions from the director. The special agent in charge communicated with the New Jersey State Police and the New York City Police. Offering any assistance with the borough might be able to lend in this matter. During the next few weeks, the borough was acting merely in an auxiliary capacity. There being no federal jurisdiction on May 13, 1932, the president directed that that all governmental investigative agencies should place themselves at the disposal of the state of New Jersey and that the FBI should serve as a clearinghouse and coordinating agency for all investigations, in this case conducted by federal investigative units. On May 23, 1932, the FBI in New York City informed banks in Greater New York that the borough was the coordinating agency for all governmental activity in the case. A watch for ransom money was requested. The New Jersey State Police announced on May 26, 1932, the offer of reward not to exceed $25,000 for information resulting in the apprehension and conviction 
of the kidnapper or kidnappers in compliance with a request made by Colonial Schwarzkopf. Copies of this notice of reward were forwarded by the FBI to all law enforcement officials and agencies throughout the United States. On June 10, 1932, Violet Sharp, a waitress in the home of Miss Lindbergh's mother, Mistress Dwight Morrow, who had been under investigation by the authorities, committed suicide by swallowing poison when she was about to be requestioned. However, her movements on the night of March 1st, 1932, had been carefully checked, and it was soon definitely ascertained that she had no connection with the abduction. In September 1933, President Franklin D. Roosevelt stated in a meeting with Director Hoover that all work in the case be centralized in the Department of Justice. He requested the director to convey his views to Attorney General Cummings with a suggestion that that the Attorney General make a request of the Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service, IRS. <sighs> Either through the President or directly for a detailed report of all work performed by the IRS Intelligence Unit. On October 19, 1933, it was officially announced that the FBI would have exclusive jurisdiction in so far as the federal government was concerned in handling of any investigative features of the case. The president's proclamation required the return of the treasury of to return to the treasury of all gold and gold certificates was a valuable aid in the case inasmuch as $40,000 of the ransom money had been paid in gold certificates. And at the time of the proclamation, a large portion of this money was known to be outstanding. Therefore, this phase of the investigation was emphasized. On January 17, 1934, a circular letter was issued by the New York City Bureau Office to all banks and their branches in New York City requesting an extremely close watch the ransom certificates and in february 1934 all borough offices were supplied with the new york city borough office distributed co copies of this pamphlet to each employee handling currency and banks clearing houses grocery stores in certain selected communities insurance companies gasoline files filling stations, airports, department stores, post offices, and telegraph companies. Follow the distribution of these booklets containing the serial number of the ransom currency. They were also prepared and similarly distributed by the brew currency key cards, which in convenient form set forth the inclusive serial numbers of all the ransom notes which have been paid. This was following by frequent personal contacts with bank officials and with individual employees in an effort to keep their keep alive their interest. Prior to this time, the passing ransom bills had been reported to either the FBI, 
the New Jersey State Police, or the New York City Police Department, none of which had complete information on this point. Therefore, arrangements were effected whereby investigation of all such ransom bills detected in the future could be immediately conducted jointly by representatives of the three interested agencies. One of the byproducts of the case was a mass massive misinformation received from well-meaning and and uninformed, highly imaginative individuals and a deluge of letters written by demented persons, publicity seekers, and frauds. It is essential, however, that all possible clues, regardless of the prospect of success, be carefully followed, it was impossible in the mass majority, mass major, vast majority of instances to determine at, of instances to determine at the inception whether they would be material or false. On March fourth, nineteen thirty-two, a conman named Gaston B. Gaston B. Mean means was approached by Miss Valen Walsh McLean of Washington, D.C., who felt that she might be of material assistance to Colonial Lindbergh in procuring the return of his child. Miss McLean had become acquainted with the means. As a result of some investigative work, which means had been performed, had performed for her husband some years before, means informed her that he felt certain he could secure contact with the kidnappers inasmuch as he had been invited to participate in a big kidnapping some weeks before, but had declined. Means claimed that his friend was responsible for the Lindbergh kidnapping. The following day, Means reported to Miss McLean that he had made contact with the persons who had the child. He successfully induced Miss McLean to hand him to hand over to him a hundred thousand dollars to be used in paying the ransom, which he had been doubled, which he said had been doubled until April 17th, 1932. He kept Miss McLean waiting, daily expecting the return of the child. During this period, he purported to be affecting negotiations with the alleged leaders of the kidnappers, whom he called to be affecting negotiations with the alleged leaders of kidnappers who he called the fox miss mclean finally requested the return of the hundred thousand dollars and additional money for which she had advanced him for expenses when he failed to do so the case was turned over to the fbi means and the fox who was found to be norman t whitaker a disbarred Washington attorney were apprehended and Means was later convicted of embezzlement and larceny. After trust and sentenced to serve 15 years in federal penitentiary, Whitaker and Means 
were later convicted of conspiracy to defraud and were sentenced to serve two years each in a federal penitentiary. There were other attempted frauds which required extensive investigations before they could be completely eliminated from consideration in connection with the Lindbergh case. In all, they were literally thousands of leads in all sections of the United States, which were followed to their definite conclusions by the borough. The results of all these investigations, no matter how trivial, were reported the activities of the known and suspected murders of the so-called Purple Gang of Detroit. And various rumors and allegations concerning this gang were carefully and thoroughly investigated. Numerous registries of boats were examined in a fruitless endeavor to locate the boat Nellie, on which the baby was to have been found according to the 13th, and the last ransom note handed to Dr. Condon at the time he paid the ransom money to John. Records of cemetery employees who were all employed in various cemeteries in certain sections of the New York City and near Hopewell, New Jersey, were, were examined. Information accumulated in various other kidnapping and extortion cases handled by the FBI was examined in the closet on the closest detail and studied with particular reference to any bearing they might have upon the solution of the Lindbergh case. Hundreds of photographs and descriptive data known of data of known criminals of all types and other possible suspects were exhibited to the few eyewitnesses in this case in an endeavor to identify the mysterious John. On May 2, 1933, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York discovered 296 $10 gold certificates and one $20 gold certificate on Lindbergh, all Lindbergh ransom notes. These bills were included among the currency received at the Federal Reserve Bank on May 1, 1933, and apparently have been made in one deposit. Immediately upon the discovery of these bills, deposit tickets at the Federal Reserve Bank for May 1st, 1933, were examined. One was found bearing the name and address of J.J. Faulkner, 537 West, 537 West 149th Street, and have been marked thereon gold certificates, ten and twenty dollars in amounts of two thousand nine hundred and eighty. Despite extensive investigation, the depositor was never located. Examination of the ransom notes by handwritten experts resulted in a virtuality unanimous opinion that all the notes were written by the same person and that the writer was of German nationality, but had spent some time in America. Dr. Condon described John as Scandinavian, and believing he could identify the man, spent considerable time in viewing the numerous photographs 
of possible suspects and non-criminals. In this connection, the FBI retained the services of an artist to prepare a portrait of John. From descriptions furnished by Dr. Condon and Joseph Perrone, the taxi cab driver who had delivered one of the ransom letters to Dr. Condon. In a further endeavor to identify the individual who received the ransom payment, representatives of the New York Borough Office engaged Dr. Condon to prepare a transcript of all conversations had by him with with John on March 12th and April 2nd, 1932. The dates on which Dr. Condon personally contacted the kidnapper in order to negotiate the return of the child and the payment of the ransom. These conversations were during March 1934, transcribed in detail on phonograph, phonograph records, by Dr. Condon, who imitated the pronunciations and dialect of John. In this manner, the nationality, educated, mentality, and the character of the kidnapper were more clearly defined and permanently preserved for future use. Another interesting attempt to identify the kidnapper centered around the latter, used in the crime Police quickly realized that it was crudely built, but built nonetheless by someone familiar with wood who was not mechanically inclined. The latter had been thoroughly examined for fingerprints and had been exhibited to builders, carpenters, and neighbors of the Lindberghs in vain. Slivers of the latter had been analyzed and the types of wood used in the latter had been identified. Perhaps a complete examination of the latter by itself by a wood expert would yield additional clues, and in early 1933, such an expert was called in. Arthur Koheller of the Forest Service, United States Department of Agriculture. Koheller disassembled the latter and painstakingly identified the types of wood used used and examined tool marks. He also looked at the pattern made by nail holes, for it appeared likely that some wood had been used in indoor construction. Koheller made field trips to the Lindbergh Estate and factories and trace some of the wood he summarizes finding summarizes findings in a report and later played a critical role in the trial of the kidnapper. For a period of seven months prior to August 20th, 1934, no gold certificates were found or discovered except for those received. In the Federal Reserve Bank, previously mentioned starting on August 20th, 1934, and extending into September, a total of 16 gold certificates were discovered, most of them in the vicinity of Yorkville and Harlem. The long-awaited opportunity had finally arrived as each bill was recovered. A colored pin marking the location of the recovered bill was inserted in a large map of the individuals who might be passing the ransom money. When the first few made their appearance, it was decided to concentrate on gold certificates. As experience had proven the futility of 
of tracing the ordinary currency, including in the ransom money. In keeping with the cooperative policy previously established with the New Jersey State Police and the New York City Police Department, teams composed of a representative of each of these police agencies and a special agent of the Bureau were organized to personally contract all banks in Greater New York and Westchester County. As a result, the various neighborhood banks discovered the bills close to the point at which they were passed, and it then became possible for the investigators to trace the bills to the person who had originally passed them. For the first time in the history of the case, the investigators succeeded in finding that the description of the individual passing these bills fit exactly that of John. As described by Dr. Condon, it was determined that through the investigation that the bills were passed principally at the corner of produce stores. About 1.20 p.m. on September 18, 1934, the assistant manager of the Corn Exchange Bank and Trust Company at 125th Street and Park Avenue, New York, telephoned the New York City Bureau office to advise a $10 gold certificate had been discovered a few minutes previously by one of the tellers in the bank. It was soon ascertained that this bill had been received at the bank from a gasoline station located at 127th Street and Lexington Avenue, New York City, on September 15, 1934, an alert attendant had received a bill in payment for five gallons of gasoline from a man whose description fitted closely that of the individual who passed other bills in recent weeks. The filing station attendant, being suspicious of the $10 gold certificate, recorded on the bill the license number of the automobile driven by the purchaser. This license number was issued to Bruno Richard Hompton, 1279 East 202nd Street, Bronx, New York. Hompton's house was closely surveilled by federal and local authorities throughout the night of September 18, 1834 until at approximately 9 a.m. on September 19, 1934, an individual closely fitting the description of John, as supplied by Dr. Condon, and the description of the purchaser of the gasoline, as supplied by the service station attendant, left his house and entered his automobile park nearby. He was promptly taken into custody by representatives the three interested agencies. After some investigating, he was found to be Bruno Richard Hauptman, the individual to whom automobile license had been issued a German carpenter who had been in the country for approximately 11 years. A $20 gold ransom certificate was found on his person his description fitted closely that of John, as described by Dr. J. Condon, and in his house found a pair of shoes which had been purchased with the $20 ransom bill recovered on September 8, 1934. 
Hotman admitted several other purchases which have been made with ransom certificates on the night of September 17, 1934. He was positively identified as Joseph Perron as the individual from whom he'd received the fifth ransom note to be delivered to Dr. Condon. The following day, ransom certificates in excess of $13,000 were found secreted in the garage of Hauptman's residence. Shortly thereafter, he was identified by Dr. Condon as John, to whom it was also certain that he was in possession of a Dodge Sedan automobile, which answered the description of that he seen the vicinity of Lindbergh home the day prior to the kidnapping. Shortly after his apprehension, specimens of Hotman's handwriting were flown to Washington, D.C., where a study was made of them in the FBI laboratory. A comparison of writing the appearing in the ransom appearing on the ransom notes with that of the specimens disclosed remarkable similarities in a positive identification by the handwriting. Experts of the laboratory upon the apprehension of Hopman, it was found that he bore a striking resemblance to the portrait of John, which had previously been prepared from descriptions furnished by Dr. Condon and Joseph Perron. Further investigation developed that Hauptmann, 35 years old, was a native of Saxony, Germany. In that round. He, was, he had a criminal record for robbery and he had spent time in prison. Early in July 1923, he stowed away aboard the SS Hanover at Bremen, Germany, and arrived in the port of New York City on July 13, 1923. He was arrested and deported immediately after another failed attempt at entry in August. Hotman successfully entered the United States in November 1923 on board of the George Washington on October 10, 1925. Hotman married Anna Schofler, a New York City waitress. A son, Manfred, was born to them in 1933 during the illegal stay in New York City. And until the spring of 1932, Hotman followed his occupation of carpenter. However, a short while after March 1st, 1932, the date of the kidnapping, Hotman began to trade rather extensively in stocks and never worked again. Hotman was indicted in the Supreme Court, Bronx County, New York, on charges of extortion on September 26, 1934, and on October 8, 1934, in Hunterdon County, New Jersey, he was indicted for murder. Two, year, two days later, the governor of the state of New York honored the requisition of the governor of the state of New Jersey. For the surrender of Bruno Richard Hauptmann and on October 19, 1934, he was removed 
to the Hunterdon County Jail of Flemington, New Jersey, to await trial. The trial of Hotman began on January 3rd, 1935, at Flemington, New Jersey, and lasted five weeks. The case against him was based on circumstantial evidence. Tools marked on the ladder matched tools owned by Hotman. What on what in the ladder was found to match wood used in the flooring in his attic? Dr. Condon's telephone number and address were found scrawled on a door frame inside the inside a closet. Handwriting on the ransom notes matched samples of Hotman's handwriting. On February thirteenth, nineteen thirty-five. <coughs> The jury returned a verdict. Hotman was guilty of murder in the first degree. The sentence, death. The defense appealed. The Supreme Court of the State of New Jersey on October 9, 1935, upheld the verdict of the lower court. Hotman's appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States was denied on December 9, 1935, and he was to be electrocuted on January 17, 1936. However, on the same day, the governor of the state of New Jersey granted a 30-day reprieve on April 3, 1936 at 8.45 p.m. Bruno Richard Hotman was electrocuted. And that wraps up this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and have a good week.